And unfortunately, apologetics as a whole tends today still to try to prove the miraculous. There's a place for that. But that's not where people are primarily. They need for us to articulate the goodness of God's plan, the goodness of God's ways. They are willing to accept the miraculous. They just don't want to accept the morals of Christianity. And we've got to move into that mode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. We are here in the Third Space studio, and uh, as usual, we are talking about evangelism for this season. And I am joined by the two men responsible for having uh, Miley's, Miley Cyrus's party in the USA stuck in my head for the <laughs> I entirety. I believe that was all your fault, John. <laughs> I did find it. But, um, <laughs> welcome, Tim and Stu, to the podcast. How are you guys going? Good, thanks, Joel. Good as usual. And Tim, how are you? I'm going very well, thank you. Excellent. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, you may have noticed we are wearing headphones. And that is because usually we have a guest on and we have a very special guest joining us today who is Timothy Paul Jones. Hello, Timothy. How are you? It's been great to be with you. So just I'm looking forward to this. And so I'm um, glad to join you and doing well. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for wearing a, a Sydney uh, emblazoned. Uh, you've got Sydney emblazoned on your jumper there to, to make it a very strange theme. So thanks for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is what I picked up in 20, uh, 2017, I think I was in Australia. So anyway, so no, I picked this up out on this, one of those gift shops at the Circular Quay uh, out there probably. <laughs> is yeah, a vastly overpriced jumper from Circular Quay. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Tim, uh, no, sorry, we're calling you TPG on this podcast so we don't get mixed up with the other Tim. Uh, can you give us a brief bio of yourself just so everyone knows who you are and our audience uh, can get to know you a little bit better? You're... You're, you said you told us you were from Louisville, Kentucky, and um, what what are you doing there? So I teach uh, the and areas of apologetics and family ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Louisville, and uh, have spent been the last fifteen years here uh, doing that. I also serve as the vice president over doctoral studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, in that, all of that, despite all these roles at the seminary for me, I often tell people I'm a pastor on long-term loan to the seminary. So I've I've (laughs) pastored ever since I was about 17, 18 years old, actually. So I've been a pastor through that time. Most of that ministry has been in low-income, very diverse areas uh, for about eight or nine years in a uh, low-income area in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in which there was um, Native American and Hispanic uh, immigrants and and all sorts of of people that were, were there as part of a youth group that I led there. And then now I serve as one of the pastors at Sojourn Church Midtown, uh, which is uh, in the Shelby Park neighborhood here in Louisville in a, um, a neighborhood that is economically disadvantaged, but beautifully diverse. And uh, I love what we see there. And uh, so I've served here for several years now as a pastor as well. In, in uh, serving in that ministry, what, how do you think it's impacted the way that you evangelize and, and chat to people about Jesus? So I think the number one way is I can't, I can't move into a a wholly academic mode. I just, I don't have the capacity to do that because every three or four weeks um, I'm preaching and I'm, I'm preaching to people who have vastly different educational backgrounds and knowledge backgrounds. There's some people who are just barely able to read all the way up to people who have PhDs and, and I'm preaching to that audience. And when you're preaching to that audience and proclaiming the gospel on a regular basis in that context, then you cannot become completely academic. You cannot move into this completely theoretical mode. You have to keep your feet on the ground. And I think that's one of the things I, I love the most about it. 
Is that um, uh, part of the inspiration for your apologetics podcast? Because I was, I was listening to the Metallica, the big Metallica two-parter that you did recently. I was just wondering if um, if that was the inspiration behind doing that podcast and, and can you tell us a bit more about that actual podcast? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of the inspiration. It's also, frankly, um, because of the fact that I just really love rock and roll and I love <laughs> apologetics and it gives me an excuse to do those things. But in, in all honesty, the apologetics part of what I do actually goes back to um, my first year of college, uh, I really, I was raised in a very fundamentalist context, an extremely fundamentalist background where we could not listen to rock music. We had to, men always had to have tapered hair. Women had to wear skirts and it was just a very almost cultic, uh, fundamentalist background. And I got to college and nobody in my family had ever gone to college. My mom and dad, um, had not gone to college. Nobody in my family had completed college. So for me, College was a brand new thing, and I got there, and there were things that challenged my faith that I just wasn't ready for. I just had no clue how to answer any questions, how to even know what the questions were. I did not know. And um, during that time, I, I came very close to completely walking away from my faith. And, and after that, when God, by his grace, brought me back, uh, one of the things that I recognized is I want to invest my life in people uh, being able to answer these questions because I didn't know there were answers. I, it was it wasn't so much that I I, I couldn't answer the questions; it's I didn't even know that the answers existed uh, at all. And I want to make sure that people know the answers, and so and to know that in a very accessible way. And so, yeah, we do a podcast called the Apologetics Podcast, in which we deal with rock and roll um, primarily on that. But we use that as a sort of a springboard to talk about apologetics week by week. And in doing that, my hope is to equip people to be able to answer the questions that I couldn't. Well, that I mean, I don't think we're going to ever get upset with someone talking about rock and roll, all three of us on the podcast. We're <laughs> big fans of that too, so that's really cool. Um, we always like to uh, look at a, a cultural artifact or a story, and we were chatting to you as, as our esteemed guest today, just before we got on recording, that uh, you might uh, like to use Skillet as an example of that, the Christian, <laughs> Christian rock band, because you saw them recently, is that right? Yeah, just a few weeks ago, I saw them. So that was fresh in my mind in that. And it's it's kind of one of those funny things because I don't listen to Christian music. There's like two Christian bands I listen to because I think most Christian music sounds just horrifically insipid six chords <laughs> and it's just awful. I mean, it's just, I, I'm a musician and it's you can roll through the di radio dial if you're doing the radio thing still. And you know when you hit Christian music because it's overcompressed music and overcooked lyrics. Uh, it's just all really badly done but there are a handful of christian bands uh skillet's one of them just saw them recently and um just i'd seen this several times over the years the first time i saw them uh corey who's the the wife of john cooper the uh the lead singer and bass player um she was actually pregnant at the time she's playing keyboards while very pregnant wow. at that time uh and so anyway so that's what i remember and so i was that a few weeks ago and it's just a re reminder to me what we need are christians who are doing good art um and they're not trying to get the get it on necessarily to christian radio or to the christian audience in a in in sort of a, a marketable sense but are doing good art um that even the world recognizes i hate that message they, the world may say i hate that message but man i i think you guys are doing good art and and there's just not that many christian bands that are doing that that you listen to them like that 
that actually sounds like it's good art uh, as well. And I think they're one of them. Another one that I, I listen to is Wage War. It's a Christian band called Wage War, a uh, very heavy Christian band, but uh, just outstanding band uh, that, that, again, has has the capacity to make good art. Mm. Um, and, I, and that's one of my passions is for people to do good art, good beauty, and, um, and doing that in a high quality way. And I think Christians have really stumbled and failed a lot on that. Mm. Well, thank you for... Um Echoing my thoughts on Christian music, that's exactly how I feel about it sometimes. Um, boys, do you have any opinions on Skillet? Uh, you, I, I know I've only heard a little bit of them. Yeah, they've they've been out to Australia twice that I know of, uh, and I went to see them both times. They're oh. excellent. Um, I, I mean, I really like their first album, which is their sort of punk um, kind of thing, and then they go much harder later. Um, but yeah, no, I really like them. I th- I, there's probably about three people in Australia that enjoy them, um, <laughs> so I'm one of them. But um, <laughs> no, actually, no, the, both both concerts were um, quite full. It was good. Um, I don't I don't think they would have had any crossover success here, though. I mean, Timothy, do you have a nice sense that you know are, the, are non-Christians listening to Skillet? Do they get much of a radio play outside of the Christian bubble? Yeah, they actually do. I mean, so they actually are able to make it at least here into a lot of um, a lot of uh, concerts and and concert series and things like that that aren't even Christian and so they're they're doing a lot of stuff outside of the Christian bubble. Mm. Um, in fact, I think probably they do more outside of it than inside of it. Yeah, and, right. uh, and so I think it's a yeah they're they've got a, a pretty good following and their music is used on all sorts of things like walk up music for baseball players and WWE worldwide wrestling <laughs> and things like that. They, their music gets used on things that are very not Christian necessarily uh, yeah. in its context. Does that fit into when did when did when the skillet um, actually you know rise to prominence? Oh, uh, well, I mean, their first album would have been ninety seven ish, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, that's when I first picked them up. Um, yeah. But they've, I mean, they've done consistent albums since then. I don't know when they kind of hit the big league. TPJ, do you have an idea? Yeah, I think it'd be in the in the past decade or so. I think really made another step beyond that. Um, they never really did. <clears throat> You know, it was super popular among Christian uh, because it was the music was always too heavy or too punk for the Christian radio stations um, in that. And so, uh, I mean, they have a few, you know, they have a ballad that'll be, the ballad will be a hit, but mm. not their real music. That's their their bread and butter music. Right. You've mentioned your uh, taste of uh, 90s music there, Tim. Is that Do they skillet fit into the, the oh, regular listening yeah, for yourself? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. what I can't remember what label they were on, but, um, yeah, all of that kind of tooth and nail coming out of Seattle, um, the sort of the, the Southern California punk and ska, that was definitely – that was my wheelhouse growing yeah. up. And so, yeah, their first album really – and it actually was interesting because I look back over their albums recently – um, and the the next two after that they kind of lost and they kind of went into that little bit of um, electronic hard kind of yeah. stuff and I think that's kind of where I, I lost interest from with them for a long time because I thought oh if, if that's the albums they're making I'm not really interested I'll just keep listening to the hardcore and the the punk yeah. and um, getting into you know other bands like uh, Zayo and Norma Jean and um, some of these other like you know tooth and nail type bands were the was where my interest lay um and so it's only recently that i've kind of realized that they they're still making albums um and actually yeah they've kind of got back into this you know heavy music and i'm like oh yeah and no, i actually quite like some of these new albums as well yeah well just like tbj's podcast got me listen to metallica this week <laughs> uh, maybe i need to check out skillet as well <laughs> it's a step up from miley cyrus anyway, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had to 
the, I had to the medicine to removing that from my head was uh, listening to Metallica and Rose Tattoo at the end of this week, and I finally stopped Rose listening. To that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blast from the past. Yeah, it was great, bad boy for love. Um, uh, we might get into the the meat of the podcast is talking about evangelism. Uh, we're hoping to maybe pinch a few interested listeners from TPJ's wider audience and I thought it'd be worth if they are jumping in on this podcast Jude, can you give us a, another flyover quickly of where we've gone with this podcast and what we're looking at yeah well we've been really excited about the question of what's happened to evangelism because we've just in pastoral ministry we've talked to a lot of people who are unsure about how to share their faith with other people uh, some people are feeling a bit timid some people are feeling a bit overconfident sometimes and responding to cultural change with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, but sometimes not a lot of direction and whimsy. Uh, so, yeah, we, th- we thought we'd have a bit of a trek through history and have a look at uh, the history of evangelism briefly and just look at some of the baggage that we have in our generation from past generations and different approaches they've taken. We've gone all the way back to Jesus, of course, and we started with um, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and we looked at how Jesus said that he'd come to bring in the kingdom to believe in him and repent uh, repent and believe uh, the good news. And so we've talked about um, Christians passing on the good news or the euangelion and that as Christians we're people of the euangelion we're people of the good news and in later generations that's actually been uh, a tagline that uh, Christians have actually adopted for themselves who are people who take the authority of God's word really seriously and are really also really keen to share that with others so that uh, idea that that Greek word euangelion is uh, what we usually translate into ev- uh, evangelical. And so we've looked at the history of evangelicalism. Uh, we've gone back to the, uh, the Reformation and we've looked at how the Protestant movement has uh, become very diverse over the preceding centuries. We looked at the Great Awakenings and how uh, the preachers of those eras preached the gospel and called on people to have a personal faith. And we talked a lot about how in previous generations before the Reformation there was this idea that I grew up in this community so that makes me who I am. So if I grew up in a Christian community, I was a Christian. Well, uh, the evangelicals were interested in calling on people to make a personal profession of faith uh, and and to take Jesus' words in Mark 1, 15, really literally, repent and believe the good news. And so we looked at uh, how uh, the Great Awakenings um, really tied together across the Atlantic with America and England, uh, with big uh, speakers like uh, um, Whitfield Whitfield and Wesley and those kind of guys and some of the... the, the Great Awakenings in, in America. We looked at how that's influenced Australia as well. And um, we also came right up to the 1900s and looked at the 20th century, how at the dawn of the 20th century, Marsden talks about the rise of fundamentalism as cultural change continues to happen within the West. And there's a big debate about authority. Uh, is faith our authority or is science our authority? Uh, the evangelicals were re- really keen to continue to preach the gospel and to declare the gospel but the fundamentalists broke away so so to speak from the evangelicals by wanting to engage publicly and politically with with different ideas like darwinism etc and we talked about the scopes monkey trial in 1928 where there was a really big public defeat of the fundamentalists in a court case where Mm -hmm. they took a teacher to court to try and stop them teaching darwinism in school Uh, second half of the 20th century um Joel, particularly you were really interested in Reagan and the moral majority and the Christian right. And also at the same time, we looked at uh, evangelicals during that period of time, people like John Stott, J.O. Packer, 
uh, Billy Graham, people who are continuing to preach the gospel. And so, yeah, there's this fundamentalism that re-emerged at the end of the 20th century and um, it keeps coming and going, we think. So, uh, yeah, there's, during the Trump era, we started talking about how, how did Donald Trump phenomenon affect that. We've talked about how the Tea Party um, mm. led to some of the Christian right emerging recently. But we're also looking at what, what are evangelicals doing right now. But to counterpoint that, just as um, fundamentalists broke away from evangelicals, so we've also been talking that in the 21st century we've had this rise of progressive Christianity as well, where some Christians who are, are kind of breaking off of evangelicalism uh, sometimes because of the fundamentalists actually and some of their political activity are actually now also dragging uh, in a lot of uh, political ideas from the left now, not just fundamentalists bringing in right-wing Christian uh, content, but now we've got um, yes, some of the progressive ideas in the broader culture being brought into that progressive unit, which is really interesting. It'd be interesting, TPJ, to hear your thoughts on that because mm-hmm. in some ways Marsden says that uh, fundamentalists are angry evangelicals and politically active evangelicals, and it's interesting to see on the left there's some of those tendencies too of evangelicals mm-hmm. that are getting angry at different issues. So, so we arrive today at uh, how do we as Christians continue to navigate that, what Tim came up with is the uh, evangelical line that goes through history. How do we maintain that mm-hmm. uh, predominance of the euangelion and the good news and how do we share that with people? And that's why I'm really excited mm-hmm. about today, TPJ, because it's really mm-hmm. exciting to hear from you your thoughts on uh, mm-hmm. uh, evangelism today. So I think in terms of that narrative, one person I think we ought to look at in terms of that narrative you've set up there is Carl F.H. Henry. Um, and and I, I think I, I've, I'm doing research right now for a book that I'm writing that comes out next year on um, on how a church can become multi-ethnic and uh, really how, how in our context, particularly this is, I mean, I've journeyed on this for over a decade of multi-ethnic church. And so... Uh, trying to figure out how do we do this and and how do we how do we make this happen? So, I, I, and one of the things I, I go but keep going back to is is Carl F. H. Henry. So if you're not familiar with Carl F. H. Henry after World War II, he emerges as a leader. I mean, evangelicalism, and he wrote this book called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, an, an incredibly important book. Everybody ought to read it. It's like 90 pages long. And so everybody ought to read The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism because he really calls out what needs to be called out. He says, basically, fundamentalists have truncated what they do only to the salvation of souls, um, that that's what they've done. And even if they're if they're politically active at all, it is in this um, sort of narrow way um, and, and in a way that is narrow and reactive if they're political at all. And what he called for, and I'm not sure ever was actually fully achieved, but he called for it, I think rightly, is a what would have been called maybe a neo-fundamentalism and then eventually got neo-evangelical and then evangelical, uh, that the terms changed over that. But it's people who care about the see see the care of for the poor see the care for things like racial justice all of those things as things that result from our engagement with the gospel our proclamation of the gospel without following on the one hand a social gospel that reduces the gospel to 
social transformation, or on the other hand, moving into a fundamentalism that reduces the whole of the faith simply to the conversion experience. He called for a holistic approach in which this, he's, yeah, we've got an uneasy conscience in modern fundamentalism. I've just read just over the past couple of weeks, book four of his, um, his masterful theological work, uh, God, Revelation, and Authority. In volume four, he says things that there are people on the far right in Christianity today that would say, you're liberal for saying these things, because he talks about about social justice. He talks about these things, but he never loses sight of the gospel as a as as the central, the core, what is our, our primary mission. But he sees that the gospel transforms not only our destination after we die, but the gospel also transforms the way that we engage with the world here and now. And, and that's really his, his big thing um, in this. He talks about, which I found fascinating just reading it this time, and based on what you're talking about, progressive Christianity, things like that. He says, if we don't do this, uh, people are going to go toward Marxism because they don't find an answer in evangelicalism. And I'm like, yep, uh, yep, you you <laughs> called it right there. <laughs> you called it in the second half of the 20th century that this is going to happen, people, because that's a lot of what some of the progressives are pulling in some Marxist things, things like that. That's what's happening um, because they don't see a, a, an adequate answer in this. And so we have those dynamics right there. Now, what I think we have coming for the latter half of the 20th into the 21st century is really we do have a a split uh two two evangelicalisms really um i really do believe we have two especially in america we have two evangelicalisms um there is an evangelicalism that is filled with well-intended people who have allied themselves so thoroughly with the republican party that they can't see any way outside of of that and they they've done that and what the problem is with that that didn't that seemed fairly harmless in the 1980s um i'm not saying it was harmless i'm saying it it seemed that way um it seemed because that you could you could move in both worlds easily at that point but what has happened for a variety of other factors is that you have this movement in which the right has gone farther and farther to the right and it's pulled these people with it um and with the again i know many of these people i am i i as i as i look at this i say these are real people that i know often in this and what goes with that too is this single issue of abortion, which I, I do agree is a heinous evil. I do agree that that it not, ought not to be happening. There's no no nothing that I'm questioning on that, but they have reduced their their capacity to engage the culture. They've reduced it to that issue. Uh, it's not that they're wrong about the issue. It's that they're re, they they have a reductive analysis of their their political stance. And so I think we have that group that is going further and further to the right um, in what I would call now a resurgent fundamentalism or a neo-fundamentalism uh, that you have now, a, a resurgence of a fundamentalism. And for me, this always scares me because I was, as I hinted at earlier, I was raised in this very fundamentalist um, context. And I, I, I have tried this before. I've walked this road before. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. And so that's where I think we've got one group. I do think we have a significant group I don't know how big it is. I don't know how how expansive it is of people who are holding on to an authentically confessional evangelical 
they're not as loud as the other group, but I think they're there. And, and, I, and, I, and I know people that are, are in that, that aren't going the progressive Christianity route, but aren't going this far right route either, but they are actually holding on to that. And I don't know what happens in the future in terms of who wins this? How does this turn out in the long term? I really don't know. But I do think that's what we're seeing. And I think it got complicated even further, made worse by the fact that in the in the 90s in particular, the church growth movements of the 90s really emphasized finding your own felt needs satisfied um, throughout the 90s. There's this big push into that. Well, you push that in the 90s into the early 2000s, and then you start moving in a lot of the social media, a lot of the, uh, the extremes of people and everything like that, that it's about but what my church provides is what makes me feel good. And it turns really dark. Um, I think what happens turns really dark at that point. And so I think some, in some ways, our church growth strategies of the 90s are coming back to bite us now because uh, it was about this meets my needs. Well, suddenly people's needs are are sometimes not even godly needs. That is to say, they uh, in any way, that is to say they want to be affirmed in their positions and in their anger and, and things like that. They want, that's what they're wanting. And uh, they expect their church to do that and to provide that. So I think that's where we're at. I think we're at a, at a liminal moment, a very important moment. Um, and all that I know that we can do as evangelicals who are appreciative of the larger confessional tradition of Christianity and who love truth and beauty and goodness and wish to seek these things in ways that are kind and gracious, I think all we can do is just be the witness we're called to be and not knowing how it comes out. But I think there is a call for us to do that and to evaluate how we engage the world in, in those particular ways. I think it's really interesting that in different parts of human history, TPJ, that you see these evangelicals standing side by side with what might be a more prominent um, movement within the church. So we talked in an earlier episode about the Crusader movements that were all, um, all about military conquest. But at the same time as the Crusader movements, you also see missionaries from Italy going down into northern Africa just to live with people and just to share the gospel with them. So it's a, I get really encouraged by your analysis because it seems to me that in every generation there are people of the Evangelion. There are people of the good news who are seeking to share the truth of Jesus and also share their lives with people too. Mm. And Tim, anything to add to what uh, TBJ was saying before we move on? Well, the, my other thought was um, as an observer looking in and particularly as I, you know, a lot of this comes through to us as, you know, through social media and blog articles and those kinds of things is you have, um, because of this polarisation that happens on the right and the left, you have the, when I, what I see is that the people who are trying to live the evangelical through line who are not trying to get dragged either way, but trying to stay close to the gospel, then get labelled by both sides as the other. So if you're if you're slightly left of hard right, then you're a massive Marxist progressive, and if you're slightly yep. right of a left, then you're a wacky conservative fundamentalist. And you get, these labels get thrown around, um, mm -hmm. and it's you know really hard to. I don't know. It feels like the tribe is you know attacking itself and eating itself as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right on that. I and mean, having been the recipient from that on both sides at times, I mean, I, in, in, as, as an apologist, I'll go to a, a university and present and I'm the hard right 
fundamentalist in their eyes. Um, I put up a tweet about, you know, something to do with uh, engaging with racial injustice. And suddenly I'm a Marxist at that point. I mean, you get that's what you're getting right now uh, in that, because I think people have been trained by algorithms to respond in certain ways. And um, and I think it's, it's an unfortunate thing. And I, I think what we we do is to raise up people who can learn from what is beautiful and good in the world around them. And I think that's all we can do is, is produce beauty, produce flourishing and recognize we're going to get sniped at from both sides, but just do that. Um, and I think about it of Augustine and De Doctrina Christiane. Um, he speaks about, uh, that's where the, the term we get where all truth is God's truth comes from a paraphrase of the section in, in De Doctrina Christiane. But he, he talks about there, he said, just because the pagans built a temple to justice doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue justice. And just because they said that Hermes was the sponsor of the alphabet doesn't mean we shouldn't use the alphabet. He said, so he's, he's making this, articulating this case for using and drawing from the world around us and seeing it as beautiful and good and recognizing that uh, whatever is beautiful and good is is ultimately beautiful and good because God has created it that way. Uh, and I, I think we just, we return to this very Augustinian perspective on the world around us. And, and that's where I'm like, you know what, I'm just, that's where I stake my claim. I stake my claim with, with that tradition and, 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 and that beauty of that tradition and, and just go forward from there. And TBJ, I just wanted to, um, uh, just come back to a couple of things that you mentioned that um, you, you mentioned the uh, Carl F. H. Henry and he was calling out fundamentalism and also that you said that you um, grew up in a fundamentalist church. I think I'd, I'd, I would think that we've all grown up in an evangelical church or we would call it evangelical. I, I'd like if you feel comfortable painting a picture of what it looks like to grow up in a fundamentalist church instead and what's mm -hmm. different and, and, and you, you spoke about before that it, it actually um, really affected your faith. And I was just wondering if you can kind of share around that a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the main things is that that I say is as a big thing, big picture is you always have to find an enemy. That's the big that's the the underlying kind of psychology in it is you always have to find an enemy, somebody there has to be whom you are attacking. Uh, and th that I think is the big thing and and that's it's a mentality. And so preachers that were great preachers would spend their time attacking uh, you know, the way women dressed or the way men cut their hair or didn't, the music of the world, things like that, is is that was their big push in that. But also there is, and this is what rang true with me and Carl F. H. Henry, there is a truncation of what it means to be faithful simply to evangelism in a very narrow sense of getting somebody to pray a prayer, getting somebody to commit themselves to Christ um, in that, and that it has a, uh, uh, just a, that we got them into heaven. And I think one of the things that, that first rattled me in fundamentalism that I, I couldn't at the time articulate what's wrong with this, but I knew that there was something wrong with this, is that I remember there was a missionary to Africa. This was uh, during the mid-80s, um, a missionary in Ethiopia. This was when uh, all the news and everything like that was talking about the famine in Ethiopia, and this missionary was from there. And during the question and answer time after this missionary uh, presented, somebody asked, well, what are you doing to feed people uh, at that point it, it, due to this famine? He says, we don't do anything to do with that. Our job is to save their souls. And, and at that time, I was like, I, I don't know what's wrong with this, but I'm pretty sure there's something wrong with this. And I couldn't articulate it. And and so those are the things that that kind of marked me. 
And, uh, you know, the thing Garrick and I joke around about on our podcast is how I heard rock music backwards for years before I ever heard it forwards, because we would have people come to church with records and they would play the records backwards to find these secret messages, these mm. satanic messages in it. But again, what that is a, a symptom of, that's a silly thing, but it's a symptom of we have to find an enemy. We have to, to be against something. And that's really what gets you. And that's what concerns me with this resurgent fundamentalism is that you have to, and you can't get extreme enough. Um, and so I think in that resurgent fundamentalism right now, one of the big things here is is with the possibility that Roe v. Wade is going to be overthrown, which I, I'm thankful for that. I think that's a, a wonderful thing, but that that's not enough. Uh, now what there is a push among some of these, these resurgent fundamentalists is we want to criminalize abortion so that mothers who abort their children are charged with murder uh, because that it's not enough just to overthrow something. We have to do that. And it's just, that's not, that's, that's just classic fundamentalism. It's never enough. You can never go far enough. And in this going far enough, there's always somebody you have to fight. So even if you win a battle, you got to find another battle <laughs> at that point. And that's what some of them have done. And I think that's, that's horrifically at, at a whole lot of different levels. That's just an awful thing of, of us, of us trying to argue for people doing that, that, um, that a mother who is in a situation where she feels like her only option is to have an abortion and they want to charge her with first degree murder. That's, that's insane, but it's so characteristic of fundamentalism. It, uh, it very much seems to fit that definition of, um, George Martin says that evangelical is, uh, well, sorry, a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's angry about something. Would you agree? Would you think that's what um, TBJ is saying? Yeah, I, I resonate with that. And I think that it's it's really difficult for evangelicals to continue to not be influenced by those kind of uh, arguments because, like you said, TBJ, there's people who do disagree with abortion and then they're presented with, well, if you... Uh, Tim talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you If you agree with... Yeah, sorry, disagree with abortion, then we bundle all these other things in with that. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you'll get an evangelical who goes, well, I disagree with abortion, but I don't think I agree with someone being accused of murder. And then all of a sudden, well, you're not a real Christian if you don't agree with all of these categories. I think that's the mm -hmm. difficult conversation that's good yeah. to have. And the other thing I'd like to say too is I think sometimes these conversations happen over decades. Like I was thinking of uh, when you're talking about a desire to share the gospel and help the poor, I'm thinking of Wilberforce, who's a real hero of mine, and he was um, involved with abolishing slavery. And, you know, they started that campaign in the 1780s, and it wasn't until 1833 in England that it was finally outlawed. So all the different machinations of that argument were also similar because all the minutiae of all the different opinions all tried to draw him one way or the other and he he seemed to be able to just chart the course and stay true to his cause because i think he was focused on jesus throughout that whole thing and i think one of the things we've been talking about on the podcast is maintaining a really clear uh, focus on jesus is really helpful in the midst of all these conversations mm. it's when everything's swirling around and everything's yeah, different yeah thinking of his teaching thinking of his character thinking of his witness uh, what has he taught us? What has he told us to focus on? And keep coming back to him is a really helpful thing. Mm. And that was something you said um, before uh, in response to, we were talking about the new atheist movement too, is that you kept just bringing back to the person of Jesus and what he's done. Mm -hmm. And he's also God, sorry. So I should say that. But yeah. yeah, and I think that's a, a really good way to think about it. Um, before we get on to asking TBJ about what he thinks the current state of evangelism is, 
in the US right now. Tim, do you want to? You brought that Barna research. Do you want to just overview that Barna research quickly um, to set, kind of set the scene about why we decided to start this particular season, and then we can ask how that kind of translates into TPJ's context. Yeah. So if people want to jump all the way back to episode one of this season, season five, I think we're in. Correct. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel and I we were chatting about some of this Barna research where. Um, I mean, the headline is almost half of practicing Christian millennials say evangelism is wrong. Um, And so uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. But there was a number of things that came out of this research that Barna did. Um, And one of the the interesting things we were talking about was the fact that uh, overwhelmingly uh, the millennials that they were studying uh, said the best thing for my non-Christian friend would be to come into personal relationship with Jesus and become a Christian. That would be, I think it was something in the 90s percentile. Um, so they were absolutely affirmed that, yeah, this is the best thing that my friend could do. And yet 43%, um, uh, no, sorry, 47% agree that it's at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal belief with a person of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So there's this disconnect there that the millennials that have been researched here are saying, yes, the best thing for my non-Christian friend would be to become a Christian. And almost half say it's wrong for me to share the gospel message with them in the hopes that they will change. And so we chatted back and forth is what's going on in the particular cultural moment for our millennials. And then, um, I mean, this research doesn't look at uh, Generation Alpha after that. Um, but it, yeah, it would be interesting to see if that trend progresses as well but what is it with young people today that actually is going on that means that yes they know that jesus is the best thing but evangelism there's something morally wrong about evangelism what's going on where it says that to actually challenge your understanding of the universe to challenge your understanding of what truth is and to present you with jesus in the hope that you will change that uh, millennials are feeling queasy about that that they think there's something actually morally wrong about hoping that someone will change and so that was um, some of the things that we were um, digging out and then another one this was from Lifeway we didn't talk about this in episode one but it's one that's I've re- uh, I think Joel you came across more recently um, but Lifeway research and evangelism explosion um, had uh, did this research and the key takeaway here is that uh, again Americans most Americans are open to talking about faith but the reason that conversations are not happening is that Christians are not bringing it up. So there also seems to be this disconnect that actually your non-Christian neighbour would love to hear a bit more about what you believe, but it's Christians, again, that are not actually doing that work of evangelism. They're the ones who are not raising in conversation. They're not just talking naturally about Jesus and who, they, who he is and what he means for them. Uh, and so the lack of evangelism is coming from the Christian. Maybe, maybe it's a fear that life-weighted research doesn't get into this, but... That's kind of what we're trying to unpack over this season. And particularly as we think about the shock absorber, the idea we're focusing particularly on young people and how they're experiencing culture and how that influences the whole church. And so as we think through that, they're the questions we're kind of asking. Is that, is that what uh, Tim said there, TPJ? Is that what you feel like is happening in your particular context even over there in Kentucky? Yes, I think certainly, certainly in any urban context, I think it may be a little bit different in rural context, but certainly 
in urban context, that's what you're seeing. And I think I think what you're seeing right here happening, if we broaden this out, is that what Charles Taylor in, in a secular age talks about as expressive individualism, mm -hmm. this notion that um, who I am is who I am. And, and that has metamorphosed beyond even what he says into this radical autonomy that I can declare what I am and nobody can challenge what I'm declaring I am. That's, that's this notion. Well, if that's what we believe about humanity, that we can simply on our own autonomy declare ourselves to be something without any regard for reality and nobody else can challenge that, you just can't evangelize at that point. And I think that people, even though they would say they haven't bought into it, I think that by and large, the people in our church have bought into precisely that mentality of this notion that people can simply declare what they are and who am I to challenge what they feel like. And, and I think that that is a, that is death to evangelism at that point. And so I, I would, I would contend that we have to attack that more at its root and that we have to engage that more at, at, at its root of what do you believe fundamentally about human nature uh, as well? What do you believe about this, that, that we can simply redefine ourselves according to our own uh, whims, according to ourselves, because that won't happen. We will never move toward a, a, a fervent evangelism if we have the notion in our mind of who am I to challenge what somebody else feels about themselves. And that's really, I think, the, the core psychological issue that we that we see happening around us. And I think that's the reason why you're, you're seeing some of those things like that. I mean, that's really, um, it is a really, in that way of thinking about it, it's really hard to think about how you can challenge someone's way of thinking. Do you guys, um, Stu and Tim, have any thoughts in terms of have you had any success doing that or is it very difficult and, and how have you actually approached that kind of um, idea that uh, TPJ is talking about? Well, yeah, one of the things we uh, like to keep coming back to on this podcast is we've called this the shock absorber because we've come up with an idea that just like a car needs to have shock absorbers to help it to go over the bumps in the road, so the church needs to listen to its young people because often young people are on the cutting edge of cultural change. But unfortunately, uh, TPJ, you mentioned that in the 90s particularly, we had this hyper homogeneous unit principle where because people's consumer preferences in church were so prominent and they wanted a church that made them feel good with a bit more of a therapeutic Christianity, we've ended up uh, dislocating the generations into families and into teenagers and into older people. And so with your family ministry, with our intergenerational ministry, we're trying to bring an all-age, all-stage context back together so that we can have a conversation about faith with young people and older people so that just like a shock absorber needs to be flexible and strong, so the church needs to have a flexibility and a strength. So bringing people uh, into a conversation who have a you know, maturity of years and, and a biblical uh, knowledge together with younger people who have more of a cultural knowledge. There can be exciting conversations rather than fraught conversations within the church because often, just as you mentioned with the fundamentalists having to have a object to fight sometimes in our churches because of the homogeneous unit principle, people's preferences um, are what they fight over, um, you know, the music or the style of the service. And so in the midst of that, we miss the real rich beauty of a conversation between younger people and older people about what, what is going on in that uh, context. And I think what's really interesting in that conversation is if we do bring that conversation back around to Jesus and we, we ask ourselves, you know, if we're followers of Jesus, let's, let's listen to 
him as he helps us to understand how to unpack these conversations. It's not so much about um, my preference or your preference, but we both sit under the authority of the Word of God and we, we both humbly, as two different generations, humbly ask the question, uh, how does God help us to discern uh, some of these things? So the conversations we can have in church can be formal or informal. We can have formal forums where we can have contexts where older and younger people can talk together in front of the congregation about some of these things in a non-anxious way so that it's not politically charged and it's not about um, a judgmental space, but it's about having a conversation with the authority of God's word as uh, a key um, part of that, but also informally, if we can create spaces around our formal services and our formal forums that are, you know, that's why we love having a meal because younger people and older people can sit down over food and talk about what it's like to be a Christian. And so for me, I think engaging that conversation again within the church means that we can start a conversation that if we can start stretching our uh, well, building our muscles in that area, we can get more confident to talk about some of these harder issues. We're training our young people how to talk about hard things and we're also training our older people how not to be threatened by that. I, I was laughing at your comment, TPJ, about backmasking, like it's fun to smoke marijuana, it's fun to smoke marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one and um, you, you were talking... What oh, album's that from? Oh, I don't even remember. There was, I remember there was some fundamentalist thing about yeah, some yeah. band had fun to smoke marijuana in the backmasking of their was song. Was Kiss, I think? Might have been Kiss. Oh, it was I was always told at school to avoid Kiss. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we had big, big fights when I was young about bringing drums into church and guitars because syncopation was of the devil. And I was, didn't even know what syncopation was at the time. <laughs> I just like ACDC, you know, I was just trying to like, But um, I, think, I think, yeah, having, having that uh, combative element taken out of our church conversations within the context of the church can help people to start feeling a bit more relaxed about and engaging with others. But that, that issue isn't then about, well, it's, it's my person versus your person it's actually about what is the person how is the person of jesus actually help us to understand who we are and understand each other yeah that's is, one thought i have yeah, in your ministry uh tbj is that uh i was just wondering in in particular in what you're doing is what are you guys doing to maybe create those conversations to be able to, and to challenge those those thoughts around the expressive individualism Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, of course, is going to happen from the pulpit on Sunday. There's a part of that. But I think we sometimes overestimate what can actually happen from that. It's good. It's important. It sets the tone. But we have to do other things. And one of the things that you'll see in our, in our congregation is almost anyone who becomes a believer becomes a believer in the context of a community group. Uh, we don't – and I really do believe that in the future – what we have got to do to have evangelism taking place is far less of an idea of personal evangelism. I individually go up to this person, confront them with the gospel. That's not wrong. That's not bad. I'm not saying it is at all. I'm just not sure it's effective today to do that. I am much more convinced, and what you'll see us, us practicing is the way that somebody comes to faith is they are invited into the life of a community group that meets weekly, meets weekly, eats together, talks together, most of these being multi-generational, though not certainly not all of them, but the, they will, will be meeting together. And in the context of a community, they learn the narrative of the gospel and the shape of the gospel, and they embrace the gospel. And even as I look at the New Testament, I think that we can look so many times 
and rightly so, that there are times when there's thousands of people come to come to faith all of a sudden uh, when Peter preaches or when you know there's a, a time when you know the, the jailer uh, is confronted with the gospel uh, in this great miraculous event that, that Paul is, is and Silas are led of, all those things like that. But I think also we miss in Acts, a lot of times it says they're meeting together regularly and God was bringing people to faith. <laughs> and I think we forget that and we think that all evangelism has to be personal confrontation or a big speaker with thousands of people and everything like that. And even in the book of Acts, that's actually the exception. It's not the primary pattern of how it happens. A lot of it just happens through people doing ordinary life and bearing witness to the gospel in the context of small groups. But what that means practically though, is we have to equip our small groups to do that. And I think that's the failure a lot of times in that. I think it's in community that people's expressive individualism and radical autonomy is challenged. It's in community, but we have to train our community groups, whatever our church happens to call them, we have to train them to be able to confront those things and present the gospel. Your community group is not just a hangout time and we try to get people to get together for who knows what reason. Your community group is this initial frontline outpost of the gospel for our church. And it's through that that people come through that and then they end up in the baptismal waters because of what they heard and what they confessed about Jesus in that context. And so I think that's that's the transition that I see happening. And I think it's a good transition, but it's a hard one because we have to be much more intentional about what a community group is and what it does. That's a really interesting thought because we haven't really delves into community groups a lot, but we do call them here at our church. And even uh, and the one that I lead at, at my house, we I brought up the election. We've got an upcoming federal election at, um, in tomorrow, actually, isn't it? So, um, and we wanted I wanted to talk about like how what how are we thinking about this and what are we doing? I'm just wondering what what are your guys' opinions about um, what TBJ said about community groups? I think that's a really interesting way of like um, challenging that expressive individualism. Do you, do you want to go first? Yeah, I think. Uh, again, just the, the structure of community groups and the amount of time that you spend with people, the more conversational tone, um, it does create uh, what we talk about at church. You know, it's that third place kind of space where you know, there's equal voices, there's um, genuine community, there's often food, there's fellowship. Um, and so it's having uh, that kind of relational, long-term relational time with each other, which actually helps shape us. And uh, one of the things we do at Soul Revival Church is we try and, um, facilitate some of those aspects with all of our gatherings as well. So as well as having formal you know, time together where we, we sing and pray and um, hear the Bible read and hear a sermon preached, uh, we also bleed that out into meal times and conversational times. And so uh, it's not uncommon for people to spend four or five hours um, across whatever gathering they go to, Friday, Saturday, Sundays, um, across at our different locations. Uh, but those kind of things do facilitate that deep transformation because you're embedding each other in each other's lives and having that small group context which has always been an important part of how we've said you know uh, life happens as a Christian um, it is also a place where it's easier to bring in um, the visitor as well sometimes people that you know and you're trying to uh, knit into the life of the church um, some people might feel confident coming to a building where there's a lot going on and sometimes there's safety in 
being you know, in a crowd um, and not being known. And so the, the, there's a great opportunity there. But often the people that we are talking to are the people that we know, uh, our neighbours. And so knitting them into a smaller group where there's relational aspect, where there's food and there's frivolity, uh, that can be the way where we can challenge those kinds of things. So I think that's a really, really helpful part of how we do church life together. Does frivolity fit into your daily lifestyle there? I like you? frivolity, Joel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's one of my favourite things. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose I'd add to that too. Uh, there's an interesting debate within church planning circles at the moment about how big is a launch team before you start a church. And uh, some some uh, pragmatic approaches might say you need at least 50 to 70 people with a full-time paid minister and a place to meet and a big you know budget for your music and things like that. But we've been experimenting with small, low-key church planning and with smaller groups of people, as small as eight, we planted a church with eight just to see how it would go. And uh, our Westride campus at the moment is um, growing through evangelism, through that uh, process. So getting together, uh, we, we like you, TPJ, have got a heart for um, uh, intergenerational and intercultural church. And we've been blessed with some really uh, awesome relationships with uh, Aboriginal Christians in Brewarrina who have smaller churches. And we've also uh, had uh, a new group that we've set up at Westride that is um, uh, most of the people have got Chinese background. So we've been finding that a very rich experience. And so it's actually difference that actually helps me to start thinking more about others' needs and less about my own individual preferences. I think that's also something, Joel, that I found mm. really the interesting. In, so the intergenerational approach um, helps. There's more people that are more different to us so that, that we can yeah. continue to that conversation that we're talking about. Yeah, well, after one service, one night we had... I mean, it's interesting. Those groups that start with smaller launch teams end up growing to about 100, 150 people and that's sort of a really good, decent size for a little village. It sort of becomes a good size and then when it gets to about 150, in our context, we then plant again and keep planting... And so we've seen some growth, some growth with that. And you know, over ten years, we've seen the original group of thirty people grow up to about five hundred people, but they're spread across six different gatherings mm. and in different locations. But um, yeah, talking Tim, picking up what you were talking about with the meals, one of my favourite um, things, which I think I've shared on the podcast before, was my mum's actually at our church, and she's in her late seventies. And one night, I saw her getting her dinner, and one of the little girls, Pippa, who's eight, saying. Arnie Bev, you're going to come and have dinner with me tonight because everyone wants to talk to you. But tonight I want to sit and have dinner with you. And they shuffled off together to a table and sat together and had a, a chat. And I just looked at that and I thought, oh, that's just really cool. And, you know, how good is that for Pippa to have that experience of having a spiritual grandmother? And how good is it for my mother to be able to share uh, with that young girl? So, But that also happens too as we go on friendship visits. Um, about 10 hours away from us, TPJ, we've, the, we've got some really good friends that we've been friends with for 20 years and... 10 hours northwest of us, there's an Aboriginal church in Brewarrina. And, yeah, going and being with them in their community, it's very intergenerational, but it's also very relational. So, yes, they'll have a sermon, they'll have a, a, a formal service, which goes a lot longer than our <laughs> services in Sydney, sometimes two, three hours. But then we, we get to have a meal together and share, and uh, the relationships that we can have with Jesus then spill over into the reconciled relationships we have with one another too. And I think that is a really beautiful witness to the power of the gospel. So, yeah, I think that's cool. And also um, that point that TPJ made earlier of like evangelizing, not just outside of church, Mm. but what we're doing together is also evangelism. So Mm. that was really cool. And it's great that you brought that up because I was going to, Tim, you you, uh, organized this podcast with TPJ and that was because of your connection um, in studying family ministry and stuff. 
Do you want to? Um, you, I reckon, I would let you and TBJ let rip on family ministry <laughs> and tell us what what the the ideas are behind that and how it's influenced you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the things we want to sort of link back around to is the apologetics. But yes, I mean, I know um, Timothy. We met a couple of times as you've been in Sydney doing intergenerational and family ministry things, particularly through YouthWorks connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I guess. In terms of that family and intergenerational ministries ideas, you know, what is the role of, I suppose, the, the household uh, in helping, mm-hmm. you know, evangelism and evangel- um, you know, being evangelical? And then also you've got this dual idea of, you know, the, there's a family as church and then there's church as family. And those mm-hmm. kind of dynamics play really nicely in the, the family ministry and intergenerational literature. Uh, so, yeah, I just want to get your thoughts a little bit on that on how the household can sort of be an effective evangelist uh, and then what's it actually mean for the church to have, you know, think of church as family how does that play together in that evangelism mm-hmm. type space so one of the things i think we have to remember is that what what happens what we want to happen in the church as a whole has got to happen in a little way in the families and if if you have a church that's weak in evangelism I can almost guarantee that you have a set of families in the church uh, that the families don't know how to share the gospel with their own kids. Um, And so, and and if it's discipleship that's weak, whatever it may be, you're going to have it reflected in a big way in your church, what is going on in a small way in families. And so, you know, I, I tell churches, just met with the church recently, and I said, look, the first thing you can do, the best thing you can do to start evangelism is if you could just get all the parents in your church to tell the story of how they became a Christian to their own children. If you could just get that to happen, that's, that's this, this step. So I think that what we have to do is help families rehearse in a little way, what we want to happen in our church in a big way. And if we see a weakness in our church at the big level, one of the things it's tempting to do is to jump on that and say, we are going to fix that. But sometimes the best way to fix that is to start with how are we training families and to recognize that those transformations at a large level will happen naturally if we train families to do that at a small level. So I think that's one of the the reorientations that that, that's family as church idea of of that. Now, we flip it around to church as family. What we have to remember is that it's not just about the nuclear family. We can easily idolize the nuclear family. We can treat, treat the nuclear family in a way that as if being in a nuclear family is the goal of your Christian life. Um, and and that, of course, is, is an idolatry of that. We have to recognize that our greater family, and indeed the family that will last forever, is, is the church. And so it's not just about equipping families, though that's certainly true, but it's equipping the church to function as a family for every person. And we have to have both of those two dynamics going on uh, at the same time. And it's easy. It's always easy to do one or the other. You can have a church that is very family as church. You are all about equipping families and all about training families. And you can do that really well and ignore the other side of church of, of the church being a family. You can do that easily but your church is imbalanced. You can do the other side. Church is family. We are a whole family together, but not equipped 
the families in the church. But to do both of those at the same time is really, really, really hard. It just is hard at that point. And yet I really do believe that's precisely what we're called to do and to be as the people of God, as the body of Christ, is to be doing both of those, to recognize our church is a family for all people. And every person in our church who is in Christ is fulfilled in Christ. If they are single, they are fulfilled in Christ. If they, no matter what their situation, and therefore we need to bring people and to, to disciple and to, to, to speak into the lives of the kids that are disconnected from any family or whose parents aren't believers. On the other hand, we've got to be equipping families to be a church, uh, families to rehearse what we're wanting to happen in our church at the same time. And that takes years, but it's really important that we do both of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like, um, Stu, that you've talked about how families and communities used to be prior to the Industrial Revolution and how that the culture has changed to kind of start separating that. Um, is that like what you're hearing that TBJ is saying too? It's kind of similar to that. Like it takes a village to raise a child almost. Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, TBJ, we've looked at some of Oldenbird's research from the 90s talking mm-hmm. about how people do community in uh, cities and that people live and work and go do community in three different places where in a village you live and work and play in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a really interesting disconnect that sometimes people walk out of church and they don't see a synergy between what they do at church and what they do at home. And so we've been trying to encourage people like that. A good example of where I've seen what you're talking about working really well is um, where families have got this sense that um, they are doing church together as well as being in the church. Is I'm also, uh, as well as a pastor here at Soul Revival, I'm also the chaplain to a, a professional rugby league team in, in Sydney. Uh, hence my jumper actually that I'm wearing today but um, the uh, talking about jumpers but the um, I'll be after this podcast actually popping down to Cronulla Sharks which is uh, a professional uh, NRL team in Sydney and watching the Christians in that team how they do family and then how they do ministry together as families in the Sharks and then how they kind of minister to the rest of the team Uh, in the in the Sharks team there's uh, two guys that I'm talking with at the moment about restarting a Bible study after COVID for the boys that just want to come along and do a community group within the Sharks. And what's really cool is I see the way they work as a team and in the Sharks and they also work as a team as Christians and the way they have their families uh, and support their families because in the NRL they move around a lot. It's hard to get to mm-hmm. church service on the weekend. So we try and set up a community group for them and their family so that they can... Uh, do church at irregular times as well as the regular times. And, um, yeah, Britt and Sione particularly are carrying the baton on from players from – I've been doing this for about six years now. So uh, some of the earlier players that set this up are people like uh, Jason Bakuya and Sam Tagatizi, the, the um, Pacifica players. So that sense of uh, being Christian in Pacifica culture is – the family is doing that together and then seeing the impact in evangelism is really beautiful because it's just fun it's exciting it's part of who they are they love sharing their their love of kfc and they love sharing their, their love of um jesus too and it seems to be seamless in that context so i think in our churches you're right like we've become a little inhibited we've become a bit we've got a bit of a chip on our shoulder that we don't want to be maybe known as a fundamentalist or a progressive and so we're kind of like which way do we go but just living that evangelical line i think in our families and i I love that actually like helping the family members to tell their kids how they became a christian i see some of these players doing that quite regularly and it's really cool how does the um you're talking about family ministry and and church as a family tpj how does that um 
look in your um, particular context there in Louisville? Is it you? You spoke about how you've got a, a, quite a diverse range of people coming to church. How mm-hmm. does how does that play out for you guys? So there's a couple of different things that we do. One of them is uh, we really, really have a, a strong emphasis to starting all the way with baby dedication. Um, and uh, and so, I mean, for, for other places that would be, that could be baptism as well, but we just, we do a really uh, important, the, the baby dedication is really important to people. Um, and it's important in our neighborhood to the people that are there. And it may think, okay, baby dedication, why is that that important? Well, it's really important because it we are in a, a very Catholic uh, kind of an area that that has has been historically Catholic, but also some people who are traditionally connected with churches, they want their child dedicated somehow uh, in that. So we use that as a as a natural way of actually when before your baby can be dedicated, you go through a training of discipleship and we give you everything you need for the first few years of discipling your child. So that's one of the things we do. We just give it to you um, at that point. And so that gives a touch point right off the bat uh, with with people. And uh, the other one is is it gets worked into some other areas of like new member training and so on like that. Um, but also then uh, then what we the, when somebody is baptized does make a profession of faith, we do cer- certain things to connect it that way. So we look at those natural touch points and ask ourselves, how can we use that as a lever to train somebody to be able to do this at home. And uh, and so that's one of the big things that, that we do. So I think what we have to do practically in our churches, your church is going to be different than mine. Another church down the street is going to be very different from that. We have to think, what are the things that are really important to these people that we can use as a leverage point to say, for this, we are going to, to tap into this in our context, whatever it may be. And we're going to use that to train people to disciple their children. And I think that's the, the most crucial thing is to look at one's own context and uh, and and to be able to figure out what is it that we can use to leverage that way in the place where God has placed us. And to that point, how does uh, having so many people from different backgrounds influence how you do church? Like I know that we've got... Um, we. Stu just brought up the Pacifica players that he's um, ministering to at the Sharks. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, relationships with um, uh, Aboriginal brothers and sisters out 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 the yeah. we- out west. Sorry, out the west of New South Wales. How does that look for you guys? Because you you said they've got a lot of people from different backgrounds um, in mm-hmm. your community. So it looks like uh, you walk in and uh, you can get a headset to get the service translated in Spanish if you want to. Mm-hmm. So you can grab a headset so that the tr- it's it's simulcast. So you can be in the service with everybody else, but the sermon and the liturgies get translated into Spanish for you. That's one of the the things that is. And then the other thing we jokingly say, I mean, the the music is kind of an equal opportunity offender. That is to say that uh, <laughs> you know, we that. might have one week that it's bluegrass music because that's meaningful wow. to some of our people. And the next week we may have an all out black gospel type of, uh, of an awesome. approach to the music. Cool. And the next week it's going to be, so the music is going, and we don't tell people ahead of time. So we don't want people coming based on the, the music, but we just, it's different every single week uh, on that. And the other thing I think we have to do is, so when there are shootings to do with our African-American brothers and sisters and in that 
things that have that have happened tragically as we've we've seen so often that has to make its way into a liturgy at some level um in that and so that's going to make its way into to liturgy of of we lament this uh we we grieve this we lament this it's acknowledged um so that those are some of the things that we do and we have to even think about it in terms of our our preaching uh so on you know, I'm preaching in a few weeks. Um, I'm preaching on Juneteenth, which Juneteenth is a um, a holiday that celebrates the time when the the last group of uh, enslaved persons who were African-Americans who had been enslaved, uh, that they found out that they were free. And it happened on June 19th of 1865. And so I can't, I, I, I'm going to make sure and mention that in that sermon somehow i have to acknowledge juneteenth uh, as part of that sermon in that not in a in a compulsive way or somebody would be upset if i didn't but just to relate to the context i'm in um and so there's a lot of different things it's a matter of of navigating all those different contexts in which we're operating uh simultaneously um in our congregation you guys are both preachers how did how do you guys handle something like that and we can get tpj's um uh, feedback on that too how would you handle something like that is it is it difficult because i'm I don't, i've never preached so that's pretty clear you've preached many many sermons i've heard many of them how do you guys approach something that's maybe a little bit uh a touchy subject but then trying to bring jesus into that that conversation just trying to think of uh any particular touchy subjects um i mean one i started uh, a sermon a number of, a little while ago with um Will Ferrell's advert about electric cars where he uh, thinks he's in Finland and he's trying to get to Sweden or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. Um, and that had potential to go sideways because, you know, climate change is one of those, you know, polarising issues people have. Mm. And, and there'd be people within the congregation who would have polarising issues um, uh, on ideas on that. And the sermon wasn't about that whatsoever. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, a way in which to sort of... Um, get to the idea what was it, it was about um, one of jesus parables which is a judgment parable um and it was introducing the idea that sometimes when there's an important message to come out you sometimes you have the will ferrells trying to be fun and you know try and encourage people to get ev vehicles um through humor and engagement and then on the other side you've also got people like uh, the greta thunbergs um who are trying to get people to act on climate change because of anger and um, passion and and almost words of judgment. And it was that talking about, that was sort of the way into thinking, well, here's a parable where Jesus is about judgment. Um, and I think I said, yeah, I would have loved to teach, I would love for the this morning or this afternoon to be a Will Ferrell sermon, but it's going to be a Greta Thunberg sermon tonight. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because that's, that was the passage in front of me and I just had to preach the, mm -hmm. the passage in front of me. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's kind of one way, but it, it was kind of linked in, but not really. It also, I didn't give an opinion on climate change. It was just kind of, it was there in the subtext of uh, what was going on. Um, I can't think of many other places where I've, I mean, you use um, cultural moments. You know, it, it would be hard to preach this weekend without mentioning that we've had a federal election, yeah, for example. So, um, and our federal elections, thankfully, aren't quite as polarising as you know, some of the images we see out of um, the states. But there are you know, vocal people on both sides. There are people with very passionate views on both sides and for parties on the left and the right and the extreme right and the extreme left. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not preaching this weekend. Do you assume you're preaching this weekend? I am. <laughs> Have you thought much about how you go to weave 
politics to do. Oh, I think <laughs> I, I think I think what you said about the text actually brings up a lot of stuff that's really good, like expository preaching, where you just take a book of the Bible and you preach through it is is amazing how often it it touches on mm. really contemporary issues. And you know, in Australia, one big example is domestic violence, and it's one thing to mention it but it's also another thing to say you know we really need to explore this together in australia we've had royal commissions into uh, the sexual abuse of minors in the church and so we found it really important to deal with that as well and talk about that from a biblical point of view and um, the ethics that you can build up in a congregation around um, biblical material is really helpful to people both personally but also in their apologetics which would be really interesting if Mm. we have time to talk some more about that was, too but that's my next question yeah cool well, I, I think i think it'd be really interesting tbj to hear your thoughts on apologetics in that space as well but yeah i, I think the bible is really helpful um to help us to deal with a lot of stuff today yeah and yeah um, we may as well move on to apologetics and using cultural moments um you have an apologetics podcast tbj what's i mean when i first heard of apologetics when i was a younger christian i was like why would you apologise for Jesus? What are you doing? <laughs> um, that's clearly not what it's about. Can you tell us what it is actually about and then why you think it's important? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I was going to say to do with the other with the discussion we're having earlier, yeah, I think sorry. one of the things, and this leads into some apologetics as well, so I think this is a helpful thing, is that when we when we address some of these issues for us anyway, and I think it could be in different ways for you, um, that we, it's important for us to say sometimes, maybe you voted Democrat, maybe you voted Republican, maybe you're somewhere in between, and this church is is big enough for all of you. Mm-hmm. And that those, those moments give us chances to say, we are not aligned with a particular political party. Mm-hmm. We really, really aren't good. on that. And so I think in that, and then that leads us to what I was going to say about apologetics is, is you guys have already hinted at this, and it seems so simple, but it's the idea that we have got to stay Jesus focused and let people know that there's all these extraneous things. And so apologetics is, is apologetics in the sense of defending the gospel. And if we try to defend every detail of, of everything that we, then it just becomes a bad game of theological trivia is all it is. But what we want to do in apologetics is to whatever topic we're talking about, to use it as a springboard to jump to Jesus. And I think that's a really important thing methodologically in apologetics. And that's what we try to do on the podcast. That's what I try to do in a lot of other things is anything. If I'm talking about creation, I'm not going to get stuck on creation because I don't want to, that's that I can, I could convince somebody of a particular view of creation, whatever it may be. And they still haven't been confronted with the Jesus of the gospel. But I want to use that simply as a way to get to the gospel. I can convince somebody perhaps that the problem of evil, there is really is a reason why a good and benevolent God would allow evil in, in the world. But if I don't get from there to the Jesus of, of the gospel, then I've wasted my time. So I think the big thing for us today in apologetics is how do we use the cultural moments? How do we use the discussions people are having? How do we use those to get to Jesus. And I think that's what we often don't ask about apologetics that we ought to be asking about apologetics. And the other thing I, I think is we are we are woefully behind in apologetics in certain ways. Um, people are still, and, and I do, and I, there's a place for this, but people are still caught up in trying to prove the miraculous 
Um, whereas people are much more concerned with the moral than they are with the miraculous. And I think that this, that's another thing I would say about apologetics today is not only does it have to be where we, we jump to Jesus, but we got to be dealing with the questions people are asking. Go back to the 19th century and most of the 20th century. Well, I think pretty much all the 20th century, those who disbelieved, disbelieved the miracles of scripture whether it's the miracle of creation, of resurrection, whatever it may be, they disbelieved the miraculous. That's what they disbelieved. They generally were in agreement with Christians uh, on many of the morals. <laughs> but but, but it's, so it's not the moral, it was the miraculous. So you go back to the 19th century, to the liberals of the 19th century, the, the Schleiermachers and those that follow after that, they would have been exactly where we are morally. But what they doubted and, and, and denied was the miraculous. Today, it's the opposite. People are willing to believe the miraculous, but they want to reject the moral. And so a few years ago, I was teaching a class to our youth at our church and said, hey, you know, just talking about the, the sexual ethics and so on like that. And a girl comes up to me afterwards and says, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. I believe all these things. But I don't want to believe any of that other stuff. How can I be a Christian and 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 believe all the miracles, but reject the morals? And I think that's where we're at right now. And unfortunately, apologetics as a whole tends today still to try to prove the miraculous. And there's a place for that. But that's not where people are primarily. They need for us to articulate the goodness of God's plan, the goodness of God's ways they are willing to accept the miraculous. They just don't want to accept the morals of Christianity. And we've got to move into that mode. Wow. Is that your experience too, guys? Because we remember we had Andy Stevenson on the podcast earlier and he talked about ministering to youth, in youth ministry and that it was difficult to st start talking about Jesus because they had to unpack a whole lot of other things mm. that they were talking about as well. Is that the what TBJ is saying there? Is that your experience that they're more worried about the morals rather than the miracles? So I'm just thinking I had um, a scripture class uh, two days ago. So um, in New South Wales, in our state, we were able to go into public schools and for um, parents who enrol their kids into faith-based classes, we are able to uh, teach faith-based things. So we, we can go into our public schools and um, teach uh, the Bible to parents who have enrolled their kids. So I was teaching one of these classes the other day and a whole lot of questions came up um, Oh, we were trying to answer the question, what is a Christian? But we, you know, we, we kind of got there, but a lot of other questions got sidetracked along the way. But one of the questions was a girl who has um, significant um, injury recently uh, and kind of in a lighthearted way, but you could tell that there was a pastoral concern behind it, is she pointed to her leg and she said, did God do this? Um, and for a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, it was a great question. Um, and, you know, I said... I honoured her. That, that is a really excellent question. Um, and worked with her through what does the Bible actually tell us about who God is? Um, how does, what does the Bible tell us about the creational world, but also a world that has fallen? Um, and so that we see uh, the natural world is, isn't what God is looking for. We've already talked about the Bible outline. I do this at the start of every lesson where we get from creation to new creation and said that you know, in new creation there's no more hurt, tears, mourning, crying, pain because all the old things have been passed away. And so we, we know that this world is not right. Um, we know that actually God is a God of love. He's not the angry um, judge in the sky who's looking for people to sin and squishing them when they do something wrong. Um, 
And so just trying to unpack that for her. So, but it did touch into that, that moral thing. Like basically mm-hmm. very similar to that John 10, John 10, I think it's, yeah, where, you know, who's seen this man or the, his parents that he would be born blind. Yeah, there was almost a 10-year-old, 11-year-old version of that coming through with these girls. You know, have I done something wrong that this, you know, this injury has happened to me, which is significant and, you know, part of who I am and just trying to unpack for her. No, there's a God of love who loves you. And yes, we live in a fallen world. Um, and yet through this God, you can know God, you can have a relationship with him. You can be um, because of what Jesus has done on the cross um, and his resurrection and Yes, we mourn with you in this particular injury, which is significant for you in this moment, and we look forward together to that new creation. So just trying to, um, yeah, all in within about two minutes of <laughs> scripture class, but uh, trying to unpack all of those kind of things for her. But I think it was reflective of where these things are at. They're, they're, they were asking that kind of pastoral, deep pastoral question for her, which is very significant. What do you think, Stu? you think it's similar? Yeah, in the earlier podcast, we talked about Alan Terrain, how he was looking at the influence of the 1960s on uh, present culture. And a lot of the new ideas that we have in our culture around new morality comes from the 1960s, like a lot of the exploration into the sexual revolution, for example. And so we actually have a real transformation in our society where there's a lot of uh, new morals and ideas that are being... Uh, exported from our schools and from the media and from um, movies and TV shows. Uh, I, I think you're right, TPJ. Like I think the the moral questions uh, are actually quite confronting to people these days. Look, mm-hmm. you still actually believe this? Have, isn't that decided? Isn't isn't that like something we've as a culture decided? Now we've moved on. So you're bringing it up again. What? Like, there's almost a frustration with why are you bringing mm-hmm. this up again? Like this is something we've moved on from. So. Yeah, it's a big challenge, I think. And um, yeah, like like you, Tim, in scripture in high school, I do scripture in high school and the high school kids often, uh, I think unknowingly, subconsciously actually parrot back when we share the gospel, they actually parrot back a lot of the new atheist um, mm-hmm. uh, memes, the, you know, the, the tropes that come from new atheism, which are angry and that assume that God is a negative concept. And so, yeah, trying to work with that to start off with is... is Quite a, I think you're right about the apologetic of, you know, that moral conversation. Like, why would a good God do this? Or does it, does God hate gays? Or, you know, these kind of questions just come out of the mouths of teenagers really quickly. And that's, again, why I think it's really important for us in our churches to listen to our young people because they're having these conversations in their communities. And if we can hear from them about what issues they think uh, are important. And also, what do you say to your friends? Asking young people, when your friend says that about... Jesus, what do you say? And sometimes I hear young people saying things like, "Well, I just say God is good," and and just putting that statement out there to start off with is 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 a refreshing new change for some people because mm-hmm. they've never thought of God as good before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think what you, you're saying there is um, remind me of something that you, you said earlier in the season, Stu, is that evangelism isn't just about uh, telling people about Jesus, inviting a response to Him, mm, and I think um, as we we probably drawing to the end of the podcast because I don't want to take up too much of your time, TPJ. But I think it'd be really cool if um, we can go around the table and the uh, perspective uh, internet <laughs> who's on, who's on with us is that how how do you go about inviting a response to Jesus? And, and um, TPJ, you've alluded to that already about having the conversations in community groups and things like that. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's get your final words. How do you think that we would invite a response to Jesus and not just be able to tell people about him, but also invite a response to respond to the, the love that Jesus provides and, and the, the saving, his saving grace that he provides as well? So I, one of the things I think that I would, I would do in that is to, to 
try to move into the person's sense of shame or guilt, because that is something that is so universal. And, and I think that it's even perhaps deeper um, among many of our, our students, especially now than, than at any other time for a whole variety of reasons. But I do think their shame and their guilt, uh, they can't deny that reality of, of that. And it's this, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? And, and to try to move from that to there is a God who has taken your shame and your guilt on himself. And that's what the cross is really about. And if that event of guilt and shame being poured out him, if that was the final word, it would be the worst news in history. But because he was raised from the dead, it becomes the best news in history. And, and he was shown to be the king of all things by being raised from the dead. And that means every part of our life needs to be submitted to his view, his way of things, not our own. And to bring somebody from that, to call them from that, to, um, to, to hopefully be confronted with the gospel, that the only way you can deal with that is is through trusting in Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus. And uh, I think that's something that, uh, that is, is such a universal feeling. It's, it's hard for somebody, even if they disagree with you, which obviously they often do. And even if they reject it, which they obviously often do, it at least piques their interest and opens a further conversation for later. Mm-hmm. I just going to ask TPJ that conversation with that teenager that, you know, I believe all of these mm-hmm. miracles, I don't want the morals. How did you, what's your, what did you say next? Well, I, so she said, I, I don't want to believe the Bible. I just want to believe in Jesus. And so I said, well, <laughs> how do you know what you believe in Jesus? How do you know the things about Jesus? She said, well, from the Bible. I said, well, I thought you didn't believe the Bible. So it was kind of a playful thing at that point. And what I wanted to see is, is, is that she really just didn't want the obedience in that and, 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 and didn't want to, to engage with, with that. And it's, then that moved to, went to first uh, Thessalonians chapter four, where it says that, that those who reject the, these morals, these ethics sexually don't reject us, but God. And that it's, you can't separate this belief in Jesus from what Jesus calls us to be. You can't do that. And this, this particular young, young woman, I, I don't know what, uh, we've kind of lost track of her during COVID and everything, but up leading up to that, um, she was, bisexual or transgender in transition, depending on the week. I mean, she, there was a lot of confusion there um, for which there need to be just a great deal of compassion. But what would was interesting about her is this happened several times is she'd come a few weeks and then something would upset her. I'm never getting, and then she'd be like, I'm never coming back. You guys, I, you, you're bigoted. You don't, you know, I'm never coming back. And so she'd be gone for a few weeks and then she'd be back. And this happened over and over and what was fascinating about that is I think she returned each time because she was unconditionally loved and the group, the, the adults would love her and care for her. And I'm just reminded by that as I think of that about how compelling a community of unconditional love is. Nobody affirmed the things she wanted people to affirm, but they still just loved her unconditionally. And a community of unconditional love is just, it's compelling to people. Even if they hate what we believe, that is, is compelling. We don't have to compromise the truth when we do that. 
We just have to be unconditionally loving and simultaneously articulating the truth clearly and not compromising either one. Mm. Any other thoughts on inviting response? I thought that was really great though. Yeah, I feel bad following up that actually, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly that idea of that the loving community is, I mean, that's, that's where my own research is going as I sort of move slowly towards further research um, is what does it mean to, for children's and children's faith um, to be formed in the context of an intergenerational church uh, where they, they are known and valued and unconditionally loved. So that, that's a huge part of where I'm taking my research. Um, I was thinking because when I'm I'm doing particularly with children, um, the questions are similar but slightly different. I think what I've noticed with kids is they often notice that there are things that are wrong in the world. They, a kid doesn't have to be very old to realise mm. that there is things that are wrong and broken in the world and, and they this sense that they're not as they should be. Uh, and so I think a lot of my, um, I guess, apologetics but also inviting response is that to clearly explain who Jesus is, the world that he has created, that is fallen and headed towards new creation, uh, and the hope that we have because of his death and resurrection, um, we have the hope of, and the certainty of being in that new creation. Um, and so that's the framework that I'm constantly putting before children um, and want them to, the, the response is to in the invite to live into that um, and to be part of that. And for those who um, are from church families faith families um it's the continuing owning of that for themselves um this is this is true for you not just of your family but also for you and so just and particularly as they get to year four five six um and into junior high school they're going through that developmentally they're going through that process where they're starting to realize that they're different to their parents and what all that all that developmental stuff um and for those who come from non-faith home uh, again, for them to be um, unconditionally loved in the community that we're in and to say, this is why you're unconditionally loved because we believe in the, the God who has died on the cross and risen again. Uh, we have hope for eternity. Uh, we know that the world now is not as it should be um, and we can see that. We're, not, we're real about the pain. Uh, we're real about the, the circumstances of your, your family or your physical ailments or the things you watch on the news and the things that you're exposed to um, and... We also, in the midst of all that, recognising the reality of that, we know who Jesus is and we have him um, as our personal saviour. We'd love to invite you to also know that surety that comes with that. So they're the kind of conversations I'm having with, with younger children. Mm. Um, youth, you're, uh, sorry, Stu, you're more in the youth space. You've spent a lot more time with teenagers. How have you found mm. I, I really resonate, TPG, with what you're talking about with that young girl you are talking about. We had um my son ethan brought a lot of his mates from high school and they came in year seven or eight or something and they ended up uh cruising with us for another five or six years even though they didn't become christians they just kept coming along and it wasn't until some of these boys turned 22 that they started to become christians mm. and um mm. i i think you're right i think you know just loving people and unconditionally and yeah we give people permission to disagree they're on different journeys um you know, we, we're quite uh, clear about what we believe, but we're also happy for people to come along and be exploring that with us rather than mm -hmm. feeling like they have to sign up to everything we believe the first time they come along to church. So that, that safety of that community group, I think, is also a really cool relational space where some of those boys spent years and years talking about their questions and they'd, you know, have a look at something on YouTube and they'd come with some new atheist trope and say oh this is what i think about and for their leaders not to freak out and go get out of the bible study <laughs> but just to go yeah cool man no worries like um 
Yeah, I think that that sort of uh, not anxious approach. Yeah, that's a good word. Mm. I like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is what uh, I listen to Mark says at the moment. He's talking. That's his book, "Non Anxious Presence in an Anxious World." Which is, mm-hmm. I've bought it, haven't read it yet. So I'll, I'll let you know what I have. Are you feeling anxious about reading it? Uh, no, I'm just reading a different book in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, a good place to wrap it up, I think, TBJ though, is to just uh, let people know who haven't heard of you before or, or want to know more about you. Um, where can they find you? And um, and uh, tell us about the book that you, you're writing as well. So they can find it, uh, just go to theapologeticspodcast.com and uh, they can find the Apologetics Podcast right there and uh, sign up for that. And uh, I am working on a book with InterVarsity Press called A Life Like Heaven. And uh, it is, it's a book on racial, uh, racial uh, reconciliation, multi-ethnic church of how to do this. And uh, it's been frustrating in some ways. A lot of the books written in this regard, uh, not all of them, but a lot are are people who are theoretically looking at this and not practically involved in it. And uh, so this, this emerges from having um, been in the midst of this. Uh, I mean, of course, Louisville was uh, for those who kind of keep track of the news globally. uh, It's where Breonna Taylor Mm -hmm. uh, was killed by the police. And we went through months and months of, uh, of, of demonstrations and protests and things like that. And we were in the, in the midst of that on the front lines of that in our particular congregation in many different ways. Um, with many of the people that were, were in our congregation. And uh, because of that, uh, that's that shaped the way we, we do some of this and and uh, helped us to, to become a, a wiser community in that. And so I'm co-writing it with Jamal Williams, who is a co who is a, the lead pastor of the church. And uh, and uh, so we lead, uh, he's the, the lead pastor. And so we're, the rest of us are uh, teaching and preaching pastors um, alongside and, uh, him and so that's what this book uh, is going to be about yeah fantastic i look forward to reading it when it mm. comes out so that'd, yeah. be, that'd be a really interesting read um uh, it's a good pl- like i said good time to wrap up the es- episode uh if anyone is listening and doesn't know you can email any questions or thoughts that you have to joel at shockabsorber.com.au you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website which is shockabsorber.com.au uh, if you are new, we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. We also have a Discord link where you can chat more about these kind of things. They'll be in the show notes. And uh, TPJ, we always like to finish an episode with a one way, which is uh, it's Larry Norman. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Larry Norman said uh, one way. So if you're happy to finish with a one way with this episode, we can do it all together if you like. <laughs> so we just do it, we just do it one, one way, way like this. One way to Jesus. All right. One way. way. (laughs) Thanks very much, mate. We appreciate it.